You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we not only managed to answer a lot of questions from our great community, but also discuss some very important concepts when it comes to the most followed CTA and trend-following benchmarks. And we explain why our TTU trend-following index, which we update each month on the blog section of the website, may be superior, of course, in our own unbiased opinion. Also, if you missed the Wednesday episode uh, in the Global Macro Series, I would encourage you to go and listen to that later this afternoon, because it was a hardcore macro discussion with no other than the dynamic duo of Macro Elf and Andreas Steno Larsen. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be provocative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives, and we want to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world, and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes and Spotify, we would greatly appreciate this, as this is the best way for us to see that you're getting some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to produce them. With all of that said, Rob, it is great to be back with with you this week. So much continues to happen in between our conversations. How are you doing? How are things in the UK? Uh, yeah, things are okay here. Uh, last last weekend, we had a four-day weekend because of our glorious monarch's um, anniversary of our accession to the throne. Uh, so I think the whole country had a, a jolly good time. Uh, and then everyone woke up on Monday and realized that we're still in the middle of a cost of living crisis with massive inflation um, and with a, uh, a very unpopular prime minister who no one can seem to get rid of um, and uh, I think I think everyone's probably a bit more depressed, even though the sun is still shining. So, um, so we've, I guess the queen the queen's got the weather sorted. She just needs to get the rest of the economy and the political situation sorted as well. Yeah, well, there we are. They did try though to get rid of him. Uh, I think in the they last did. week on, or so. But... On Monday they tried, but they failed sadly. So, okay. but this is not Fair. a political podcast. So let's move on. It is not a political podcast, but we are allowed to have our opinions you know that is the great thing about what we do here now president biden and the members of the federal reserve were hoping that friday's cpi report would come out um, below expectations but to no avail in fact each and every one of the economic releases communicated bad news for the leaders the headline year-on-year -year cpi came in at 8.6 percent versus the consensus estimate of 8.3 percent and the x food and energy tally came in at six percent a touch above the survey estimate of 5.9 percent later in the morning yesterday the university of michigan consumer uh, survey offered no better news the overall sentiment tally plunged to 50 versus last month of 58 and the inflation component over the coming year ticked up to 5.4%. 
that's clear. That's a clear message to both Biden and Powell of no confidence. The reaction in the markets was as expected, with stocks indices getting crushed. Several uh, market analysts said earlier this week that the uh, stock market could be close to a bottom, but Friday they were eating their words as the S&P 500 is only now 100 points away from its most recent low. In reaction to the inflation data, economists are actively resetting their expectations for the path of the Fed funds. Several street economists have upped their rate hike expectations to 75 basis points at the next at next week's open market committee meeting. Similarly, the Fed funds futures market now expects the overnight rate to peak at 3.6% by May of 2023. And given the Fed aversion to deviate from their publicly shared comments, the likely outcome is 50 basis points hikes at the next two meetings. By the way, we also had the legendary investor Stanley Druckenmiller come out this week warning that the bear market has ways to run as Fed hikes rates. And apparently he lightened up on tech in Q1 and he bought into energy stocks. Speaking about energy and before we move on to some good news, I I did want to highlight that the U.S. oil markets are seeing the lowest stocks overall for this time of year ever since the data series began. And the summer uh, driving season is just about to begin. And that leaves the markets at a very dangerous place. And um, that is even without China being fully back, by the way, to work. And from what I can tell, OPEC does not have much gas in the tank to pump more oil on a daily basis. So... um, something that actually our previous guest Adam Rosenzweig pointed out weeks ago. But with that said, Rob, let me ask you what has caught your um, attention in the last few weeks since we last spoke, other than the Queen, of course. <laughs> yeah, the the whole oil thing is um, just a disaster. It always amuses me though when I see, and I think I've seen people, I think I've complained about this before, but I see Americans complain that you know, gas is costing them five dollars a gallon, and uh, in the UK now it's more like the equivalent of nine dollars. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, at, at one point last week, um, petrol prices in the UK were rising by about one and a half percent a day. So that that's kind of, you know, verging on kind of hyperinflationary sort of levels. So, um, indeed. So yeah, it's the, these. There's always a lag before these things start to affect the economy, but it's hard to believe that that they they won't. But anyway, let's let's kind of. Uh, move away from that. And uh, I'll give you some very quick numbers. So year to date, I'm up 36%. And I think um, it was probably about a month and a half since I last spoke to you. But but just just to kind of kind of give you some figures then. So the first quarter, uh, I was up 27%. And then in uh, April, I was up 4.5%. In May, I was down a little bit, like 1.5%, which was a bit of variance, because I think CTAs generally were probably flattish in that month. But not me. And so far this month, I've made uh, like 2%. So, so far, it's shaping up to be quarter one, an excellent quarter, obviously 27%. Quarter two at the moment, a shade under 7%. So still very good. And they're not the kind of crazy, crazy returns of, of, of Q1. In terms of uh, where that performance has come from, which kind of leads us back to the question of, you know, where, where are the markets moving? So if I look at the, um, let's see, what should I look at? Let me look at Q2. So Q2 performance so far, Top market is the yen. Um, the yen has been, I mean, you know, a big, a big market. So um, obviously going completely hammered. So I'll tell you a little story. Actually, I was at a uh, a conference last week, and uh, most of the other people on the the in the room were discretionary traders, and uh, you know, so they all they all kind of 
very very good at talking about the markets. I'm not very good at talking about the markets. I'm much better at talking about the systems I use to trade the markets. But the the, the guy we're doing a Q and A session, and the guy said to me, you know, so the yen's getting crushed today. You know, I assume you're making money out of that. And I said, well, I don't actually know whether I'm short yen or not. I need to check. And everyone in the room is laughing. I'm like, no, genuinely, I don't know what my positions are because I'm a systematic trader. You know, I get regular positions reports and I glance at them, but I don't, you know, necessarily focus on them as closely as I would a discretionary trader. So I check, I check my phone. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still short yen, so still making money out of being short yen. So um, they all thought I was joking, but I was being deadly serious. In fact, <laughs> one of the one of the nice things about going on this podcast is it does force me to actually look at my positions at least once every, you know, six weeks or so. So, so maybe that's a good thing. Um, yeah. So also, so yen was the biggest market, but but also up there were you know crude oil. Um, still making money out of energies, even you know, though my my position smaller than it was in Q1 because of the, the increased vol. Soy complex have done well in, also done well in corn. Interesting to see the bund in there. So I've got a short bund position, um, and that's that's done pretty well over the last couple of months. Um, so it's it's unusual to be you know short a bond market in in a, in a CTA back test because of obviously the secular trend in interest rates plus the. Uh, carry positive carry normally so it's kind of interesting to see when you do get short positions in these markets and make some money out of them that's quite nice uh, let's go to the other end of the spectrum um, i'm just glancing at markets i've not done so well in i mean there's not really any key patterns there i mean aussie dollar i don't know iron uh, pound euro live cattle i'm not really seeing any interesting patterns there so let's let's skip over that today's positions then what where are my positions at the moment so um I'm having to check this because I don't know it off by heart, as discussed. <laughs> um, I'm running at about half average risk target at the moment, 12% annualized standard deviation. So a little bit higher than a few weeks ago, but not still massively high. Um, I'm actually running quite a lot of positions in there. So um, I'm running about, just trying to do the maths in my head, I'm running about um, 18 positions at the moment. Um, so the, the reason for the low risk is the fact that those positions are, at least on paper, quite uncorrelated. So, um, you know, if um, that, that suggests that, that I am potentially running a much higher risk if you assume that all the correlations changed. Um, but anyway, yeah, my biggest short position is the Bund. Second biggest is the Yen. So that kind of makes sense. Um, also short Korean 10-year bonds. Uh, short gold, short Bitcoin. Um, and then the long side, um, again, you know, the, the same markets I just mentioned. So long gas, long crude, uh, long soy oil and beans, um, long corn. So, uh, and interestingly, I'm currently long the V stocks. So I'm kind of betting on implied volatility in Eastern Europe, kind of creeping up a bit. Although that's not a massive long. So yeah, I think I think a few weeks ago when I was last on, I said the the portfolio was fairly kind of balanced, if you like, and not not taking big concentrated bets everywhere. That I think that's still the case. Um, it's it's you know it's it's and I and I'm not sure whether this is a um, an artifact of the way that I'm now constructing my portfolio or whether it's an artifact of the way the markets at the moment have some nice trends, but they're not focused. You know, it's not like oh all in energies um, or all in yen. It's in energies and yen, and there's also a little bit of short buns in there, and you know a few other bits and pieces. Yeah, it's been. Um very interesting in the sense that it has been somewhat broad-based in terms of the trending behavior, not necessarily at the same time. It's kind of rotating from one sector to another, which is, of course, a beautiful 
pattern for for trend followers uh, in in the sense. And yeah, no, a great great update uh, on that, and and congrats on on the year so far. I think it has been a, it obviously has been a spectacular start to the year for for trend followers in general. Um, and actually, I think this week, uh, if I'm just looking at the week, uh, I would say it's been a solid week for trend following strategies again. Overwhelmingly, the winner. Uh, winners this week is going to be short and long-term fixed income um, because the short positioning that I would imagine most trend followers have, just like you, uh, are just paying off at the moment. And um, of course, also, we've seen a, a bit of a renewed dollar strength, and that's played out pretty well, I think, for most trend followers this week, um, especially maybe against uh, things like Swiss francs and the yen and the euro. And then energy markets, as you, as rightly uh, you said, uh, although they are still uh, moving nicely in an upwards trend and made money this week without a doubt, the gains were probably a little bit more modest compared with some of these other sectors uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, the same for the grains. Um, I would imagine they um, did, did, did perform well overall. And this is kind of interesting because that's also what I pick up, that depending on your time frame, uh, equity is a little bit sort of a, a, a coin toss, whether you're long or short at this stage. I would agree with you that longer term systems are probably still a little bit long. That's what I pick up as well. Um, but of course, if you have a shorter time horizon, you might uh, have a short uh, exposure at the moment. And then, yeah, uh, meats didn't do so well this week. But overall, Pretty strong, solid week for, for trend followers. My trend barometer also increased quite a lot uh, during the week and finished at 66. So now we're back in what I would classify as a strong trend following environment. Good. Well, we got lots of questions. We're going to jump straight into it. But you know, the first question I have to ask you is always the one you want to hear. And that is, how's your book coming along? Uh, it's going well. Um, so I'm, I'm basically doing the really tedious stuff, which is doing the kind of appendices and the glossary and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've, I've sent off the, the, the sort of substantial first draft is finished and I have a bunch of people who are giving me feedback on that, which is um, if, if, if those guys are listening, I won't I won't name them, but, but so they know who they are, then thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And then the, so the plan is basically to, to take that feedback incorporate it into the book finish the tedious stuff um and i'll be sending the first draft off to my publishers um hopefully within a few within sort of about three four weeks hopefully and then and then uh, there'll be a long a long job of editing and proofreading um and i've got some work to do in terms of putting together with with all my books i like to put together spreadsheets um so people can actually see how this stuff can be you know kind of done themselves because even if you know, even if you're a high-flying kind of computer coder, everyone can start with a spreadsheet and see how the formula worked there. Um, but I'm also going to write. I'm going to write some computer code as well and put that on a, a website. So, so, so that that's kind of the the uh, the process. So it's, but it it is at the point of like the last one percent is like, oh my god, it's just like it's like pushing the rock over the top of the hill. Like you know, it's really. I think at the end of a big long project like this, I'm not at the end, but I'm at the end of the first stage of doing the first draft. Uh, inevitably, you know, you start to lose motivation, and it's sunny, and it's like, do I really want to be in here typing? You know, so. But I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. And Niels, I have to thank you uh, for your 
continued badgering of me, uh, which, which I, as I said, would hopefully motivate me to hit my deadline. And fingers crossed, touch wood, I, I will hit my deadline. So thank you. Well, there we are. There we are. Good for you. All right. Well, the first question you will not have seen, um, Rob, because it came in a few weeks ago, um, and I've been saving it for you to come back, um, because I think this is kind of quite relevant for uh, with your background. Um, it is from uh, Ben. Hi, Ben. Um, and uh, Ben writes, uh, Hi, Nils. As always, I follow your podcast starting from the top traders unplugged to the newer version and the interviews you're doing in between is just getting better every time. Thanks for the hard work you put into these podcasts. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Ben. My question is regarding money needed when one wants to quit working and do trend following full time. How much money is needed when one needs to cover living costs of, say, 120000 let's call it dollars a year, for a family and expecting 12.5% KGAR? I guess Rob and all of you can take uh, can talk a bit about that. I was thinking to expect a drawdown of 50% for the first year, so I would double the capital needed. I think eight times living costs, i.e. 12.5%, would be possible but I would double that to 16 times. So when the drawdown arrives in the beginning, one has not to quit. To have a little bit of room, I guess 20 times living cost would be a safe assumption. So if 120,000 living costs are needed, then $2.4 million would be the capital to start with. Is this sufficient? Uh, and what are your thoughts on the above? Well, Rob, you... Um, You've done this kind of thing. So what do you think of 20 times living expenses as the capital to trade to be able to weather a drawdown and to hopefully be able to live from it if you hit your long-term return target of 12.5% KGAR? Um, yeah, so the, 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 this is one of those questions there's no right answer to. Um, I have to mm -hmm. say, I, th I think um, Ben's done a really good job in kind of First of all, thinking about it in a very structured way. Second of all, using probably um, fairly, uh, I, I would say, not too optimistic or aggressive assumptions on on his returns. Um, you know, he's not saying, you know, well, I think I can make ten percent a month day trading. Uh, he's he's clearly much more sensible than that, or he wouldn't be listening to us, right? He he is sensible because yeah. I I know who he is. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I'm actually wondering. I, I used to have a guy working for me called Ben. I'm wondering if if it's the same guy, and he's he's now at the point of of uh, thinking about retiring. I hope I hope it's not him because uh, I don't so, I don't think it is. I, I think I can be pretty safe saying that it's not him. Good because the guy I'm thinking of is far too young to retire. I, I think it would be a disgrace if he if he did that. Anyway, I, I'd say. Um, at the end of the day, it comes down to your personal risk appetite, right? So if if you're comfortable with those numbers, Ben, then go for it. You know, uh, one thing I would say is don't forget about taxes. A lot of people forget about the the effect of taxes. Um, so that twelve and a half percent needs to be net of taxes. There is another way of doing the maths, though. So I'm going to introduce this this as an alternative way, and this is the way I actually think about it, um, which is a sort of a different way. Um, and that's to say to do the following and say, well, actually. Your your you know your your trading income is uncertain, okay. It's 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 highly uncertain, and um, the what what you should do, so one way of thinking about it is to think about it in terms of a drawdown and say well what kind of drawdown can I cope with? The way I think about it is like this: I think about my trading account as like a little mini hedge fund that um, you know just just does its own thing, and every now and then sends me a check. 
Um, and that check is effectively uh, any return I make above the high watermark for that, which is why you know I think of it as like a hedge fund. It's, it's a, mathematically like a hedge fund that's charging 100% performance fees that go to me. And obviously performance fees only get charged above the high watermark. So so there we go. So that I, I see that, that the, the kind of money tracked to that fund is money I can't take out unless unless it sends me a check. So then what I do is say, well, how long could I survive for without those checks? And, um, you know, so if I, I would say um, it depends how conservative you are. So, you know, assuming, for example, the 50% drawdown in, in year one is pretty conservative. An equivalent way of saying that might be, well, you know what? It's not implausible if we look at the historical record that you can go back, you know, and there'll be periods of three, four, five years when this sort of strategy doesn't deliver any returns. So I say, well, I need to be able to survive for five years without any of those checks arriving. Okay. Um, and and in, in many ways, I've been very lucky since I've I've been doing this. Actually, there's only really been like one, maybe two years where there's been no, you know, no checks, if you like. Um, but there's been a couple of years when the checks have been obviously very low and a couple of years when the checks have been very high because that's the other thing. These, these checks are very variable in size. Um, so what you need to do is to have enough kind of capital to survive, say, five years without checks. So you can hey, say, well, I'm going to have five years times $120,000, $600,000, you know, as kind of a, a buffer, if you like. So that's that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is to say, well, and this is what I do, is, as is well known, I have a trading account, but I also have other investment income. And I also have other income from things like selling a few books and teaching and a little bit of consultancy and so on and so forth. Um, is to say, well, okay, given that I have all of this other income, you know, and this is sort of the position for someone who's still working as well, right? Maybe in, um, in still working as well, is to say, well, how much extra do I need from the, the trading income? Um, and then I need to be able to kind of smooth the flow such that, you know, obviously in, in a given year, if I get no checks from the trading account and my passive income makes up, say, 80% of my living expenses, then I just need to have enough of a buffer to, to manage the other 20% effectively. So, so that's another way, another way of doing it. Um, but yeah, twenty times that. So that you're, you know, the bottom line is twenty times you're assuming a five percent return a year, if you um, after tax, consistently as well. If you if you think that's that's realistic, then then you know, and and your risk appetite can cope with that. Then then that that's what it comes down to. That that's the really simple way of thinking about it, right? Just converting it to a percentage. Very interesting framework, and I noticed you didn't even include the checks that government seems to be sending out everywhere at the moment. So yeah, um, I don't, I don't get those you. checks, Niels. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Okay, now we're back to the questions that came in uh, via your uh, Twitter um, tweet, I guess. This question is from uh, Gambit. I don't know if that's your real name, Gambit. Um, I would just say, generally speaking, I normally shy away from questions where I don't have a real name because I just think that, you know, that's at least we could do is just to put our real name. But let's assume that Gambit is your real name. I have a question for Rob. Would adding a mean reversion system to a short-term time frame, i.e. daily, be complementary to a trend-following system that trades on a monthly or longer time horizon? And is there any benefit in exploring trend trading in spreads such as WTI versus Brent? So I'm a bit suspicious of Gambit um, because this is literally like part four and part five of my book. <laughs> I 
part four. Well, of then my... you should know who he is. Well, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think. Well, maybe I do know this guy because part four of my book is is basically um, about trading fast mean reversion, and part five of my book is about tra- is about trading spreads and uh, and butterflies in in relative value systems. So, so, so in I, fact, you paid him to I, pluck your book. The question God is, Neil, am I am I actually Gambit? I mean that that's. <laughs> I, I mean, I can tell you, I'm not, and hopefully you trust me. But but there are probably some listeners listening cynically and like he just made it. He just wrote this question and like you know because tweeted yourself we know that we rob rob gets one opportunity in every podcast to a moan about how hard it is writing his book and then another opportunity to plug his book so just let's just feed him the line and let, let him get the, the book plugging over out of the way early so we can listen to the good stuff so yeah um the the answer is that so let's talk about the fast mean reversion first of all. So okay. generally speaking, the efficacy of trend following um, tends to be best in a within holding periods of between, say, a couple of weeks and a year, roughly speaking. It depends on the asset class. Generally speaking, for most asset classes, once you're up to holding periods of longer than a, a year, you tend to get more of a mean reversion pattern because you, you can have value type strategies where you're buying low and selling high. <laughs> Um, and then for um, similarly for short time frames, you get to the point where trend following um, just stops working effectively. So you've got a low holding periods of um, you know a couple of months, a month, a couple of weeks. It depends on the on the asset class when you start to see this pattern. Generally speaking, you see a pattern where trend following no longer seems to work that well. Now the question is then: Will you say, well, if something's not working, maybe we should do the opposite. Maybe we should do mean reversion. And indeed, um, it does seem that for holding periods of a kind of a few, a couple of days up to about a week, at least on paper, mean reversion does seem to work pretty well. Now, there's a, the, the, the first challenge with any faster trading system is execution costs. Um, but one of the nice things about mean reversion is that you can actually uh, use limit orders to, because you, if you imagine the, the equilibrium price is in the middle of a channel, effectively, you place a limit order at the top of the bottom end of that channel, and then when the price meets that, you execute. So you're not paying the spread, which is what you would normally do if you were, you were trend-following fast, say. Uh, if you're trend-following slowly, you can use execution algos to try and avoid paying the spread. If you're trend-following fast, you kind of have to pay the spread because you want to get in there straight away. Um, so, um, so that that's kind of the, the the sort of basic idea. Now, the other challenge with mean reversion systems is the mis- risk management is absolutely horrible because <laughs> uh, trend following systems have this beautiful property where they do their own risk management. Um, so, even if you like me don't use a stop loss type system, you could basically you'll basically close your position when the trend has flipped sign. You know, so that, and also because I'm scaling forecasts according to strength of trend, the behavior I get is, you know, as as a trend starts to weaken, I start to reduce my position, and then when it's turned, I close, and then I go short, effectively. Um, so that's a, a kind of self-managed risk management without needing a stop loss. Uh, mean reversion systems don't have that because the mean reversion system in its most basic form will say, oh, price is going down, oh, cheap, I'm going to buy it. Price goes down some more. Oh, I'll buy some more. I'll buy some more. I'll buy some more. Um, and you know, at some point, you're going to end up losing a hell of a lot of money. Um, and so, mean reversion systems are the kind of horror that we dislike on this on this podcast. They're negative skew. Okay, they ha- they make steady profits and they make sharp losses. Um, so, what I've done in 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 the book is to use a, a trend following filter effectively to um, kind of do the risk management for that system. So, what that means in practice is it will only ever do these mean reversion tr- uh, trades in the general direction of the slower trend. Um, so, it'll it'll buy when the trend comes off slightly and sell above the trend 
but it will never go short if if the overall trend is up. Um, and that that makes it a little bit more correlated with trend following, which obviously isn't as good. But on the other hand, um, it improves the the kind of risk management properties of, of the strategy and also improves the Sharpe ratio for what it's worth. Um, now, there are challenges in combining that with the trend following system in the sense that there's challenges with combining any strategies that trade differently together because you can't do what I normally do, which is just to essentially calculate this risk-adjusted forecast of future returns and then just take a weighted average of those across lots of different um, systems and then you know then execute the optimal position you can't do that here um, so you you've basically got two choices one is uh, a very complicated option um, which is to um, build some kind of netting into your trading system so the way this would work would be you know you, you imagine you've got a daily system generates trades at night this is what I do actually at the moment then in the morning it has a trade that it wants to do what you then do is turn on in the morning your fast system and basically if an opportunity comes to net that trade against the faster trading, then you net it and that's one less order you have to execute. The other thing you can do, which is much simpler, is to actually just, and this makes a lot of sense for me because I, I can't trade as many markets as I'd like, which is why I have this dynamic optimization, is to basically carve out certain markets where the commit commission per contract is relatively low because although we're not paying for the spread we're still paying commission when we trade the, this uh, mean reversion system um, is to carve out a portion of your instruments like and say well okay these instruments here we're going to trade with this faster system and then the, you know we, we we kind of don't trade those with the slower system and obviously that's a lot cleaner and simpler so that that's the kind of this that's the sort of um, one of the, the 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 cool things in the book, if you like. Um, it, it's the the only system in the book that has a sharp ratio above two. Uh, and I can tell you, I I have the table saying the sharp ratio is two, and I immediately say in the next paragraph, you know, ever since I was a, a little boy, a little quant researcher, I've been told never to trust a sharp ratio over two. Do not trust this sharp ratio. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we would expect it to be higher than a you know a slow trend following system because it's trading quicker. And because of it, it's giving you some negative skews. So you kind of would expect to get paid for that in in sharp ratio. That's real. Yeah. Um, yeah so well, that, what about the spreads? What about the spreads? the spreads? I was going to say. So I won't go into massive detail about these because this is sure. more of a well-known thing. And I think, for example, Moritz has talked about his his spread trading as as well. Um, so um, what I do in in the book that's kind of um, something an approach people may not have seen before is basically to create what I call synthetic instruments. So if we take a spread like, um, so there's two different kinds of spread, this cross instrument. So um, I'm a fixed income guy originally. So I would think of something like the German Bund versus the German bubble, for example, five-year, 10-year German as a cross instrument spread. Or alternatively, I could do um, a, a calendar spread in something like the arrival future. Um, and so both of those things are bets on the, the slope of the yield curve, but in, in different ways. And um, you, you, the idea is you, you essentially create a synthetic instrument that and you create a price for it and then basically with some relatively simple maths you can just do everything the same okay so it, it means you can fit relative value instruments into the same framework as the as the directional trading so it just makes your life a lot easier so that's the kind of main innovation of of, of, of the book in that respect but the basic idea of trading spreads as trends is not you know it's not it's fairly well known and a lot of people do it um, and also, you know, things like a, a butterfly, for example, those tend to, again, tend to be more mean reverting. So yeah, that these are fun things to do. The problem is, well, there's a couple of problems. One is time. 
um, and effort. Um, so these things are all a lot more complicated than just punting, you know, buns outright, say. And if you're fully automated like me, there's kind of a lot of operational complexity associated with putting these things in. Uh, and the other issue I should very briefly mention with with the relative value stuff is obviously increases the amount of leverage you need, particularly for something like, say, calendar spread in your eyeball, where these things are very highly correlated. Uh, and again, that it potentially makes you in it puts you in a dangerous position in terms of uh, you know sharp losses if these things become decoupled. Yeah. All right. Well, the next question comes from one of your other Twitter accounts, Rob, because the question is from Young Gotti. So that could also be you. We don't know. <laughs> it's not. I have a question for Rob too. He, he even says two. I mean, it's like you, you forgot that you already sent yourself the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on the trend following punt intended in the CTA industry towards alternative assets, including less liquid futures and OTC contracts. It looks like every major player has launched a program which, at least in some part, has exposed to such assets. In theory, the more assets, the better. But I wonder how can multi-billion dollar funds trade something like cheese futures? My suspicion is that such assets actually get a very small risk allocation because of liquidity issues. So that mostly becomes a marketing trick to justify higher fees. I was also curious what residuals stand for in your daily automatic P&L report. It is often a large factor than the actual performance of your dynamic trend-following carry strategies. So obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about alternative markets later yeah. uh, in this conversation. So maybe we keep this answer a little bit shorter because we're going to come back to, to it again. Yeah, I mean, if you look at cheese specifically, I just had a quick look. I think it, the, the most liquid month traded 43 contracts a day recently. Yeah. Um, and in, in the way I think about it, which is annualized dollar risk, it's about $360,000. Uh, which is about one-fifth of the minimum limit I would need to trade the thing. Um, and obviously, I'm much smaller than a, a big fund, so they would have much higher limits. Um, yeah, and no, it's a tricky one because uh, on paper, the more the more things you add, um, the more of a, a theoretical – you do get a theoretical benefit, but it kind of tails off after a while. Um, and um, the there is a cost. There's a cost, there's a cost to adding these things, um, an operational cost, because, you know, even if everything's automated – um, particularly if you're trading OTC instruments, for example, you need to beef up your back office um, a lot more than you do with futures where you can have everything a bit more systematic. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I remember actually having a, a discussion with the the COO of AHL when he kind of dragged me into his office and uh, there's a list of like 50 futures markets I, or OTC markets I wanted to add to one of our funds. Uh, and he's like, you know, come on. What, five-year Indian interest rate swaps or something, really, <laughs> and um, I, I'm like, well, yeah, I think there is a there is a kind of marginal benefit to all of these things. The thing is, when you're trading twenty billion dollars, even a point, you know, zero zero one percent allocation will add probably more to the the bottom line than than the the, the the additional management cost of doing it. But yeah, there is a point at which something is so illiquid you you can't you can't trade it. Clearly, uh, I mean, you know, milk is more liquid than cheese. Uh, that's a joke. Um, uh, the second question very briefly because it will probably only concern a very small number of people in the audience but but basically the, the, the residual is due to a mismatch between two different ways I calculate P&L one is to look at the overall value of the account over a 24 hour snapshot the second is to look at the, the, the prices of things that I hold and see how they, they've changed um, so there are two there are two reasons why there would be a difference one is uh, a timing mismatch um, between the, the 
the two periods when I capture the price. And uh, the other is because there are there are other things going on in the account apart from just futures changing price. Like, for example, you know, I have positions in different currencies to, to, for margin. The P, those will have P&L. I also have some fees going out of the account and so on and so forth. Um, but that, that that's quite relatively – what tends to happen is over short periods of time, like one day, the, the mismatched has a big effect, which is what he's seeing because the only – thing I publish on a daily basis is the daily PL. On a longer period of time, like the reports that I, I tell you about, um, it's less about the mismatch and more about the, you know, the other effects that are coming in. But just to give you a feel for the, the kind of quantum of this thing, uh, if I look at my performance uh, year to date, um, which I, I think the overall number was like 33%, uh, the residual PL is 1.8%. So, okay. you know, it's it's not yeah. it, over the course of a whole year. It, it it'll be of the order of three percent, and the vast majority of that will be due be due to to FX. Because if you think about it, I'm typically holding thirty percent margin, right? Right. That's all in foreign currency for me because I don't trade any sterling uh, GBP sterling futures. So I'm exposed to the PNL on current of ten thirty percent of my account has currency PNL. Well, if you think that the average currency probably moves about ten percent versus sterling in a given year you know recently that's been of the kind of that order of number then then that's three percent plus or minus yeah yeah oh, that's fair enough fair enough well another uh, twitter account comes in here um you had to really be creative with this one rob it <laughs> is from fluff fluffy donny um there we are and then the question is do you ladder into you into and out of positions i.e two or more entries um to minimize false breakout losses if loose pants are needed after entry, wouldn't a full position entry cause a lot of losses on false breakouts? Yeah, this is definitely not me, Niels, because this is this is I this know, question I'm has got no, you know, fun. it's very much not not my thing at all. Because I, as you know, I don't operate a discrete trading system. Your pants are not so loose, maybe. I don't even know what that means. I think that's the thing. That, you don't know what loose pants? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's well a Jerry known term used by Jerry. Jerry and, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I know. And Rich, exactly. and it comes from. It comes from Perry Kaufman, actually. Yes, I know. A guest, uh, I know. I have the book yeah. in which that quote appears. Yeah, yeah the quote is. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you answer this question, Niels? And if I've got anything to add that's interesting, I'll, I'll do that. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I think in general, it all depends on account size, right, at the end of the day. So for large CTAs, professional CTAs, absolutely. We, uh, In order to get to a full position in a market, we would get in with many small steps and we would get out uh, also with smaller steps. So in a sense, if you're only trading a breakout system and using, say, 10 different uh, entries, um, you're right that it should, in theory, um, minimize uh, the losses of potential uh, false breakouts. On the other hand, you can say that if you were only using one entry, which I certainly wouldn't recommend, then, of course, if the market really does fly after your entry, of course, you're going to make more money from it. So, but in general, because we believe in diversification on on all sides in our trading methodology, um, diversification in terms of of entry points um, is certainly something we would uh, expect to have for for most trend followers. Um, I would say. Anything you want to add? No, it doesn't really. I mean, the, it's ultimately about getting. Yeah, because you're a continuous yeah, system, yeah. so it's different. But, it, but so yeah. it, when I when I do introduce in one of my books um, and also in some blog posts a a stat a, a discrete system which uses a stop loss, I say the most important thing is to match your stop loss to the horizon that you're forecasting at, basically. Um, so um, 
so you know that if you're if you're kind of trading like three month trends and you don't want a stop loss that's like I don't know half percent of, of of daily standard deviation or daily ATR because you're just going to get stopped out within hours, which is ridiculous given that that you you're looking for trends that last for three months. Um, you probably want a, something that's more like um, about seven ATRs or about half the annual standard deviation, which is roughly the equivalent of that. So yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. All right, then we have a question from Mendel. Uh, Mendel writes, this may have been asked before, but how would you go about selecting a universe of stocks to apply your existing rules? Most liquid, question mark. Most diversifying, question mark. Greedy algo, question mark. Uh, just stick to sector-specific futures, question mark. So this question was actually asked before, but but I actually misheard the question and answered a different question. So I'm really glad that it's been okay. asked again. Um, okay. If you go back and listen to the last podcast, I, I give a, a very eloquent and long description of how you should um, select. I remember that. select stocks, yeah. but but I'm actually talking about a completely different type of trading strategy. Um, this this actually is is effectively a version of the question of saying, well. How do you choose a universe of instruments where instruments is normally futures to trade, um, which is for a uh, you know a retail trader is a big issue because we know we don't have the cash to trade everything, and um, the, 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 the 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 I would use the same basic principles, which is basically there are two ways of doing it. There's the way I used to do it, which is the relatively easy way where you pick a static list of instruments you want to trade, um, and that that's done by a, a sort of a trade off between um, things like costs the size of position you need to hold it what i call the minimum capital um and then diversification um and i i, I you know I, I use basically an iterative process where i add pretty much usually the cheapest instrument that, that meets these requirements and then i add the instrument that that's relatively cheap and also diversifies and so on and so forth and i iterate through that process um, then the second way of doing it, and this is the the, the, the reference to the greedy algo, because the greedy algo is this thing I use within my dynamic optimization that I use now, where basically I have a huge universe of things I could trade over 150 futures markets, and then uh, and then selectively that will optimize for and today, for example, the 18 instruments which give me the best match to that portfolio, which I, I can't actually hold because I'd need 50 million bucks plus to do that. Um, so there's no real difference between applying that those methodologies to stocks to futures, uh, with a couple of exceptions, uh, actually with only one exception, um, and that's that um, the the tick the sort of tick size in stocks is much smaller. So you can you can normally trade um, you know stocks that are much smaller in size than a typical futures contract. Um, you know even if you're not you're not getting into the murky world of fractional fractional stocks which you can do at certain retail brokers that that we won't name but are named after you know mythical english folk heroes who rode around in forests um and hung out with people called maid marion uh, but we won't name the brokers obviously no no that would be, no, no. be bad but they, they they do offer uh, fractional shares but there are disadvantages with trading with people like that in terms of hidden costs but um you know even for you you know your Unless you're trading like Berkshire Hathaway class class A, um, you the, the you know you normally a stock costs a couple of hundred dollars, and has annualized risk of a couple of hundred dollars times twenty percent. So it's you know you can trade much smaller fractions. So the you can you, you can trade a lot more stocks than you can trade futures with say a hundred thousand dollar or five hundred thousand dollar account. Is what I'm saying. I'll just briefly mention stock specific uh, sector specific futures. Um, so. Um, so one way of getting around this problem is to say, well, you know what, 
I want to get exposure to the stock market, but I want to get at a more granular level than just trading, say, the S&P 500 or the Eurostoxx 50 future. Um, but I don't want to trade stocks because there are actually operational issues with trading stocks. Futures, in many ways, are much easier to trade um, around things like, for example, constructing back-adjusted prices and not having to deal with dividends and stock splits and corporate actions and all this kind of stuff. Um, so you could say, well, I can get pretty good diversification by trading stocks, uh, sectors, futures, uh, which are listed in, in both the US and Europe and are pretty liquid, actually. I don't trade the US ones because I'm, I'm not allowed to. Um, it's a, there's a regulatory issue there, but I do trade the European ones. Uh, and in fact, at this very moment, I can tell you that uh, I do have positions in, for example, I am long um, the EU oil sector future. So I'm long a bunch of European oil companies. That's like another way of expressing the long oil bet, if you like. Uh, and I'm also long um, the, the 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 basic sector. And I can't remember what basic means, but it, I guess it's... Probably base raw materials. Raw materials or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. So that that's yeah. another way of expressing the commodity boom thing. So I, I do trade these things. And I even have positions in them at the moment. So so yeah, that, that could be a, another a way of getting more granular into stocks without actually trading stocks because yeah if you if you have the the, the manpower and the, the the ability to trade in individual stocks brilliant you get the diversification benefit but uh, it's moving away from futures and therefore making your life more complicated Now, you brought along three topics, but you actually asked me to start with another topic um, beforehand because um, the last in the last couple of days, there was a paper out from uh, your old employer, uh, our friends at AHL. Always interesting to read what they do uh, or write about. And they were publishing something about trend following. So that obviously is very um, relevant for our conversation. And it's also relevant in the sense that it talks about the topic um, that uh, we had in one of the questions earlier, and that is kind of the, if there are any advantages in having uh, these alternative markets compared to a more classical portfolio, a topic that we, of course, discuss a lot uh, here on the podcast, as we have a little bit of a different opinion about it. They also talk about trend following, you know, what works best in crisis periods. They talk about trend following and in particular exposure and PL opportunities in fixed income, uh, which is also a very relevant. And then they talk a little bit about the outlook for trend following, which of course we all uh, want to know. So why don't we dive into it? Do you want to jump in and give me your thoughts on that? You said you might have a surprise um, in this. So I'm kind of a little bit nervous now. <laughs> so uh, let me uh, let me hear what you have and I'll do my best to keep up. Um, so yeah, but it's only five pages. But as you say, it, it kind of really packs in a lot of uh, interesting findings. Um, so let, let's start with the, the, the one that relates to the questions. So what they do is they divide in markets into traditional and non-traditional okay so this is kind of a little bit different from the take we often take on this podcast which is dividing trend following into you know traditional and non-traditional so you know pure kind of ideologically wonderful trend following uh, a la a la jerry and then uh, you have the heretics like me you you know but but that but that that kind of characterization is obviously based on how you trade not based on what you trade okay so this is a bit different right this is based on saying well traditional trend following in this context is trading you know your core futures markets non-traditional is trading um you know a lot of stuff that's for example not futures so over the counter markets otc markets also individual stocks things like forward effects and so on and so forth um and why this is particularly important for ahl 
is the most successful fund that AHL has had over the last, I believe, 10 years, is a fund called AHL Evolution, which um, was primarily designed for exactly this purpose, for trading things which are not futures, but trading them in the same way as they trade the futures, if you like. Um, And this thing has performed incredibly well year after year after year. And um, I obviously was closely involved with it when I was was, was at AHL, I think at one point, so like 40% of the assets in that particular fund I was managing. So, you know, I'm I'm very familiar with it. Um, And the one question clients always used to say to us, actually, there there was two questions. One was, can I get an allocation to this fund? Because we had to keep soft closing it because of capacity issues. Because obviously, you know, a lot of these markets, like the, the ones we were discussing earlier, not great capacity. Uh, the second question they would say is, well, you know, what is it about these markets that makes them trend better than traditional markets? And I would always say, look, I, I don't think there is a particular reason why there's something special about these markets that that makes them, you know, so much better for trend following. Or, or indeed, you know, we weren't just doing trend following, doing carry and other things as well. Um, I believe the outperformance of evolution is basically two things. Firstly, just luck, frankly, because, you know, we it's just luck. Secondly, um, it's down to diversification. You know, the the these this fund had more internal diversification within it because it had allocation to all these random things that were very uncorrelated to each other. Whereas a traditional future CTA portfolio, you know, obviously had very much the things that you know, you basically have like three or four big bets in there at any one time, right? That that's kind of the, the maximum you could get, you know, in terms of stuff that was going on there. Um and um you know, they, 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 the client, and they, the clients ever really believe me. Now, what's happened this year, interestingly, is exactly the opposite. And this is the the, the, the the thing that's happened. And I'm guessing this is probably why this article has come out, because someone with an AHL has noticed that the narrative they've having to, to put up with the last 10 years, which is, well, why, why is evolution so much better than anything else? All clients now are turning around and saying, well, why is evolution doing so badly, relatively speaking? Um, so they've, they've, they've put together this thing and said, well, yeah, this, this year first five months five months at least um traditional has been better than non-traditional okay but obviously because you know they're uh, they're quants they're researchers they're interested in not just explaining what's going on now they look back in history and so well let's look at some some earlier um crisis periods and there's some definition of a crisis that we, we don't need to go into um but but they they come up with a, a selection of, of crisis periods um, and they look at the performance of of trend versus uh, alternative in 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 those periods, and they see that the traditional markets do better, generally speaking, in in these crisis periods. So that that's kind of the the, the broad brush uh, approach. And they do say it could be related to diversification, right? So um, they say, well, you know, maybe maybe the, the diversification is something to do with this. Maybe the diversification that makes this thing better in the past makes it worse right now because because there's a crisis happening. Okay, so, I mean, super interesting insights. Um, um, but I, I, I disagree. I, I, a... I disagree with this. But you, you ask your no, no. question and then I'll explain no, why. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. It's interesting, your insights, because you worked from, you worked there, you were involved in it. That's what I mean. That's very interesting that you have those kind of insights. My question to you, first and foremost, is do you think this article reflects evolution? Or does it reflect a traditional trend-following model, pure trend, but where the only difference is the markets? Because when you talked about it, I got the sense that evolution is not just pure trend on a lot of markets. 
it's doing other things as well, which could explain why it had outperformed, you know, then we were not comparing apples to apples. So I just wanted to clarify that and then let you go on and, and, and talk about where you disagree. And then we have the other part of the article, which is about the fixed income, which is also quite interesting. Um, so you're right. Um, but then it's also the case. So basically, AHL don't really have a pure trend following fund, right? They have things that are more trend following than others. Evo actually is closer to a pure trend following fund than some of their other funds, to be honest. Um, now, the, your, your, the article actually, um, and obviously I, I, I've just read the article, I've, I've read the footnotes, but I don't necessarily know exactly how they've done these things. Um, but I'm, I'm, it looks like it's simulated, which means they've probably taken a, a fairly basic trend-following strategy and applied it to these markets to get these results. So it's not, it, you're right, it's not precisely reflecting the returns of these two funds, but the, you know, the funds are not sufficiently divorced from the the idea you know basically the relative performance of these two funds will show that pattern evo will have done better than the futures funds for much of the last 10 years and go back further actually to be honest and then the last few months evo will have probably done relatively worse i would imagine although i haven't checked the numbers to be honest uh, yeah. but anyway that all right yeah you said you disagree i disagree so yeah no, i know i disagree well the, the first reason i disagree is although although there's an outperformance it's not huge um it's about um I think it's about 0.2, 0.3% a month, which is 3.6% a year, which isn't very much. And actually, the main the main thing is if you look at this this graph and if you're looking at the, the paper, Niels, or people are following along at home and managed to download it, um, there's a graph at the end of page three and it's got a dark blue, a yellow, and a light blue section. The light blue section shows the monthly performance in a crisis. Um, and basically, you know, world stocks are down by 4% a month. Uh, the BTOP 50 is up 1.5%. The, the kind of benchmarks so the BTOP 50 and the uh, SG trends are up about 1.5% a month in those crisis periods. Uh, and then the alternative markets is up about one9 and the traditional futures markets are about up about 2.2. So the, the, the kind of really the main message of that graph to me is, oh, okay, in a crisis, trend following works. But we already know that, right? And it works whether you look at the market benchmarks or whether you look at this back-tested simulation. So that's great. Then within that, you've got this relatively small to me outperformance between the, the these two markets um now the other thing i don't i've not been able to work out from looking at the article um is is how many of these crisis periods there are so is it like um you know is it like 10 20 30 how many months of crises are they looking at um so i think it's unlikely to me at least that the diff this difference in performance will be statistically significant because i just don't think there is enough data points and a big enough difference between the two of them. So to me, it's one of these kind of, to me, it's the exact opposite of the argument I was saying earlier. Is there a reason why these Evo markets, uh, these non-traditional markets are so much better than these futures trend markets? No, it's just luck and diversification. Is there a reason why they're particularly bad in crisis periods, including the first five months of this year? I don't think so. I think it's just luck. I really do. Um, I don't think I don't personally think that's meaningful. Um, but it, it's kind of still, in a way, almost nice to see this because um, you know it's quite amusing, amuses me actually. Like when you know when A is doing better than B, I was like, why is A so much better than B? Like it's just luck. They don't believe you. Now it's like, well, why is B so much better than A? You're like, well, you know the answer I gave you a second ago. It's just luck. I really, I really don't think there's there's anything meaningfully significant difference between A and B. It's just it's just luck. It, re it really is. You know, I mean, there are there are. It's you know, we can go into things like, for example, well, you know, these OTC markets tend to be more kind of things like, say, emerging market 
bonds, for example, the things that are more likely to do badly in a crisis. It might be that 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 you know if you're trading them relatively slowly, you can you can't quite short them quickly enough. You know, I you know there are there are perhaps structural reasons why these some of these instruments wouldn't do quite as well in crisis periods, but you know it's pretty it's pretty small beer. I don't think it's anything to get too excited about. So let should we move on to the next part of the article? We should we need one. Yeah, we definitely want to move on to the next point. I want to say just uh, quickly that I will link to this uh, article, this uh, paper in the show notes. Just go to the show notes on the website under this episode with Rob, and you will find a link. Um, and so that's one thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say is that. In my own simplistic way of looking at this argument, because it is an argument that we have, uh, or a discussion, I would say, uh, we have on the podcast between um, the five of us. Um, and the way I look at it is, if, and, and maybe evolution is a special case, and I don't even know how far it goes back, et cetera, et cetera. But also, you know, uh, again, can we completely say it's pure trend? Probably not. And, and, and that has a lot of uh, caveats. What I will say, though, is when I look at managers where I know they have been trading these portfolios of hundreds of markets for a long time, for a relatively long time, where we can say, okay, there's enough data here. And if I, for example, compare it to managers that I know well that are trading the classical trend-following portfolio of 50, 60 markets, I actually don't see the broader diversified portfolios uh, or managers doing better. So that's my first very simple uh, screening uh, of that. On top of that, and this is again just for my own um, account, so to speak, what I worry about is that, and this goes back to my bigger theme and thesis about where trend following is heading, I worry a little bit about that a lot of these alternative markets, especially if you go into OTC stuff, especially if you go into countries like China, frankly, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think that they have all been great, but they've all come at a period where liquidity has been ample, stability has been great. And so if my own thesis about where the world might be heading in terms of a more fractured and deglobalized world with less liquidity, frankly, certainly as long as the central banks are stepping on the brakes, I worry that liquidity will become much more important and that can add additional risks, let's put it that way, to these quote-unquote alternative uh, markets. So that's just my for my own account. Uh, there's no right or wrong. I have no idea if I'm right uh, uh, on this point or if my concern is valid, but that's how I see it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. All right, very. I'm just going to really quickly address those points, Nels, if you don't mind. So yeah. the the um, the diversification. I do believe that it's worth having these things in your portfolio if you if you can because of the diversification element. For the same reason that, that you know Jerry's a big fan of trading single stocks. You know, which which you know you could say, well, they're not the same thing, but you know, it's the same argument to say, well, actually, if you can go belong, you know. If you're only trading, say, seven futures, you can do better by trading 14 futures. Okay. If you're I only trading that, 50 yeah. futures, you can do a bit better by trading 100 futures. If you're already trading 100, so sure. 100, well, okay. If you're already trading 150 futures, which is probably getting to the limit of where you can in terms of liquidity, pretty close to my limit, and I've got a small account, then well, where can you go? Well, you can go into single stocks. Uh, you can go into OTC, um, and you know there are OTC markets, for example, where you can just you just can't get 
exposure in the same way with futures. An example would be, you know, FX forwards, where you can trade a lot more currencies than you can trade with the IMM FX futures, for example. Um, and, you know, indeed, some of these IMM FX futures are not very liquid at all, whereas the FX forward markets are massively liquid. Um, now, I guess there's a danger in having too much of your portfolio in these things, clearly. I mean, if you were to kind of have a liquidity-weighted basket of all the tradable assets in the world, then, fu- you know, futures would be not a massive percentage, to be honest, because you've, you've got bonds and stocks, which are much, much bigger markets. And then these OTC markets probably are in total the same size as the whole futures market if you you know add in literally everything um i mean the fx market is obviously massive but so there is a kind of probably reasonable weight to have in your portfolio to these things so you know if we take ahl for example i believe it's still true you can't just buy evo by itself right they won't let you you have to buy it as part of a package with the futures markets because you know that way you're getting the maximum diversification right something like 70% futures 30% otc is is quite and is probably about right actually in terms of diversification benefit. Now, of course, if liquidity changes and and that that thirty percent is no longer you know liquid enough, well then you have to shrink it. You know, and that that's what that's what you can do if you're if everything if all this stuff is inside a single master fund, you can actually deallocate from the you know the other stuff um, and uh, and put it put it back into the futures markets. And yes, it will reduce your diversification, but at the end of the day. You know, there's no point in trading cheese. You know, there's no point in trading uh, an OTC market if the liquidity in it has disappeared. And we actually saw this back in 2008 when, um, you know, AHL had to radically shrink the size of their CDS portfolio for reasons that I do not need to explain. And and then, uh, you know, it, it, over the following years, one of my jobs was to kind of bring CDS the it's back in size uh, to an you know to an extent. But there were things we, we were trading in 2008, like, for example, sovereign CDS, that we, we, we didn't, certainly not while I was there, we never traded it again because the liquidity just disappeared and never came back. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right, but I, I still don't think that's an argument for, if you can, never having any allocation to this stuff. No, and fair enough. Uh, I just wish I could see it more clearly in the data, and and as long as I can't, um, it's hard for me to say wholeheartedly that I think two hundred markets is better than, you know, sixty well, theori- liquid theori- markets. Theoretically, it is right, and it, it's theoretically. Yeah, no, yeah. theoretically, yeah. it's all great. And, but- and the the thing is that the the theoretical stuff actually understates the importance of diversification, and this is Rich's big point, right? That 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 because of the the fact you're looking for tail events. Um, the the you know because the theoretical improvement in correlation terms from say um, fifty to hundred is is it's nothing right it's like a five percent improvement but if you look at your you know your actual improvement in a back test I know back tests aren't everything but if you look at the actual improvement you see you know a much bigger improvement than that um, and that's because correlation is a linear measure and and it doesn't account for the fact that when you 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 have a 50 150 markets you're twice as likely to pick up these tail events than you were with 50 markets but anyway mm. shall we move on because I, this is a debate that we Let's can have forever uh, so the second the second part of the the portfolio was about fixed income um and i actually alluded to this earlier because i said well, you know, in the back test, it's unusual that you're ever short fixed income because of the secular downward trend in interest rates and the carry. Uh, but and generally speaking, um, if again they've looked at crisis periods and they've they've done this in a kind of anecdotal way, so they've said, well, here's a bunch of crises, LTCM, Tech Bubble '99, 2008, and so on and so forth. And they said, well, what, what typically what does a, a a trend following system do in those periods? Is it long or short bonds? And does it make money out of being long or short bonds? 
Um, so the interesting thing about that is that the the current crisis period is very unusual in the sense that a generally speaking we are short bonds in trend, as trend followers, but obviously we're still making money out of that because bonds have been going down in price. So um, it's it's been quite an interesting one because again going back to my days at HL, you know the question we have from every client is well you guys are going to lose money when interest rates start rising every single time. Because you know your, your back testers benefited from these massive secular trends in bonds. When that's not there, you know you're you're, you're going to lose money. Um, and the honest answer is that um, if interest rates are flat or only falling slightly, or you know then or move sharply, then yes, you will lose money as a trend follower. But the environment of the last few months, where we've had a fairly steady downward trend in in bond prices, a fairly upward um, upward trend in yields. Um, which has more than offset the, the the positive carry effects. It's been great for for bonds and shorting bonds, as you say, has been has been one of the trades that's kind of taken over from the energy trade uh, at the top of a lot of PNL lists, along with being short yen. So again, that that's it, it's it's kind of an interesting. I mean, again, I, I put my statistician's hat on, and I say, well. This is even more of an, you know, even less of a significant result than the previous one. But on the other hand, I can say I have myself done work on looking at this exact issue in a more rigorous way, looking at lots and lots of data. Um, and generally speaking, you know, the bottom line is that you will not make as much money in a, in a rising interest rate environment as you will in a falling interest rate environment, but you should still make money as a trend follower. Um, and obviously, that's a lot better than being, you know, stuck with a just a sixty forty portfolio, which has not been great for the last few months. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, th- should we very quickly talk about the inflation part and then stop? Yeah, I was going to say yeah. let's uh, round it off with some inflation and the outlook. Yeah. So, the other thing they've they've done because obviously this is very topical, and we were talking about petrol prices at the top of the show or gas prices, as our American cousins like to say. Um, and they've 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 looked at um, real returns for different assets, including trend. Uh, and the nice thing about this, actually, this is probably the most substantive piece of research in the paper because they've gone back nearly a hundred years in terms of their data, which is fantastic. And they're, 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 what they're, they're doing actually is also interesting because th- there's been a fair few people saying, "Well, how does trend falling do in high inflation, low inflation?" Um, and you know, a lot of those pieces haven't been great because they've only, they've gone back to just 1970 so there's only been really one period of high inflation this is lovely because they've gone back a lot further and the other thing they've done is they've looked at not they've looked at basically what happens around inflationary periods so during inflationary periods the last six months of inflationary periods the last six months following the inflationary period and the last year following the inflationary period um, and um, you know the bottom line is that trend as well in all of those periods um, and then other asset classes do about as well as you'd expect. So, for example, during inflationary periods, commodities, gold, do well. Um, equity does badly. Treasuries do badly. High yield does badly. Um, that pattern doesn't really change much towards the end of the inflationary period. And then following inflationary periods, you start to see rebounds in equities, for example. You start to see rebounds in, in treasuries. Um, but things like com- commodities, not so much, and the, 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 it's, the, the, that's quite noisy. I would say the the after inflationary story. The, the, there's not really much of a story there, but there's a very clear story about inflation. Which, again, assuming we are entering a period of protracted inflation, and it's, I think it's going to take at least a year for the, the current s- structural bout of inflation to work its way through the system, if not longer. Then uh, it's good news for for. Um, trend followers at least if the historical record back to 1926 is anything to go yeah no, absolutely 
And then they uh, round off with their own conclusion, uh, so to speak. And I'm not going to read the whole. I conclusion, don't think we should read the conclusion because I th I think we should we should let people read read go and read the paper and okay. uh, give that's fair. Yeah, because I think I feel I feel bad for Graham that we've basically just completely just stolen his thunder by by, by going through the whole paper in in, in such detail. Uh, I think it's great it's for great... him actually because he he gets uh, an audience that he might not have yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So I think it's, well, he uh, can you, if if I people can download it, read the conclusion for themselves and. Uh, and yeah, okay, it's a great let's paper. leave it with that. There is one other article that I just want to, for personal reasons, just want to highlight because I think it is, again, one of those things where I don't necessarily fully agree with the way it's portrayed. And it's an article that came out, I think, on Bloomberg. Um, and it's talking about market-crushing quants face tougher times ahead, a reference to CTAs. Um, and there's a, you know, obviously in the beginning of the article, there is some talk about how well CTAs have been doing. And then they start talking about all the things that kind of can go wrong. And um, Charlie McElliott at Nomura, um, whom I'm not always agreeing with, comes out and, and, and it says, um, yet now, they're all at risk of facing choppy markets. We're talking about CTAs now. Yet they're yet now they're all at risk of facing choppy markets with the S and P 500 vacillating within a rough uh, 100 point range for the past two weeks. Charlie McElliott, across asset strategies at the Moore Holdings, said Wednesday that a recent bout of short covering in equities by CTAs had left them delicately delicately balanced, even as their cumulative global exposure to stock futures was back to being net long. Their buy and sell signals sit in a tight band close to current levels for a number of key futures, McElliott wrote in, in a note, meaning small moves either way could whipsaw CTA strategies. And what I take exception with here is that although he might be right, that for the small portion of the portfolios that are within the equity exposure, we could have uh, signals that might change relatively uh, quickly because uh, there is no clear trend necessarily right now in some of the equity indices, not all of them. So he might be right. But they make it sound like that's the only thing we do and that's the only thing that's going to determine CTA performance. And that's what I want to just put a big nail through and say, no, our, in fact, our performance attribution from equities uh, this year is probably pretty small because that's not where the action is. And by the way, as we've explained now for the last uh, more than an hour, CTAs are very diversified. And so what goes on in one particular sector really is not going to determine our performance uh, one way or the other uh, as such. So that's what I take exception with, not necessarily uh, that we have a little bit of a tight range in equities and that our signals might change quickly. That may well um, be the case. All right. With that said, maybe just a quick uh, rundown of um, performance. As mentioned, it's been a good start to June. Uh, and as you heard from Rob, it's been a great start for him as well. Um, and yesterday, Friday, these numbers are as of Thursday. Of course, the Friday was a good day, um, despite all the negative news um, and, and the negative moves in equities and and uh, fixed income. But the Beta 50 index as of Thursday was up 2.72% uh, for the month of June, up 18 and a quarter now for the year. SockGen CTA index up three and a quarter for the month, up 23.14 for the year. And the trend index is just flying up 3.96 for the, for June, uh, even without Friday, up 30.72 uh, so far this year. Very strong performance. 
as I mentioned earlier, my trend barometer is back uh, in the mid-60s, so it's very strong. MSCI World Index down 5.35% so far in June, down 18.26% so far in, in this year. And the World Government Bond Index, no no protection at all in bonds this year, down 1.97% in June, down more than 10% now year to date. And just as a reminder, actually, I would encourage you to go and check out the upcoming midweek episode as well on Wednesday, um, where we are joined by one of the most interesting thinkers on the topic of investor behavior, socionomics and confidence, um, a gentleman called Peter Atwater. So you definitely don't want to miss that one. Next week, I'm joined by Mark for another fun and insightful conversation, no doubt. So make sure you send in your questions. As always, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll do our best to answer them as soon as we can. And also um, follow Rob and uh, everyone else uh, relating to the podcast on Twitter. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.